You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Quedno, and today we have two special guests, Matt Turnauer and Robert Hammond. They are the directors of a new movie called Citizen Jane Battle for the City, which is coming out later this week in theaters and on demand. Citizen Jane highlights the story of Jane Jacobs, who most of you are familiar, is an urban activist and author of the classic book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, among other many famous books. So this film was directed by Matt Turnauer, uh, and he's known for his feature film, Valentino, The Last Emperor. And it was produced by Robert Hammond, who is co-founder of Friends of the High Line in New York. Matt and Robert, thank you so much for being on the Strong Towns podcast. Thanks for having us. So I'm interested first in finding out what drew you guys to the topic of Jane Jacobs. I think we both came late to Jacobs. I was... uh, fascinated with cities and architecture. I've written about architecture, and I'd never read The Death and Life of Great American Cities until about, say, six or seven years ago, and I was just so taken with it. Uh, Her writing style is so amazing, and she's got such a strong voice and uh, such a clear thinker in print. Robert and I uh, began talking about the book and our mutual passion for it. And that's how the project had its origins. But you came late to it too, right? Yeah, I, I, a lot of people assume that, you know, I had probably read her in college. And I, I, don't, I don't even know if I knew who Jane Jacobs was when I started the High Line back in 1999. And so I, you know, embarrassingly came late as well. But, I, you know, I was just struck not just by her ideas, but just the, the very story of, you know, someone living in her neighborhood and, you know, a, a woman journalist in the 1960s that completely revolutionized the way city planning did. And also, as the movie shows, you know, defeated one of the most, the strongest person in America in some ways. Yeah, it definitely seems like, you know, your story of coming to Jane Jacobs in the last few years is is fairly common. It seems like there's been a recent resurgence in interest in her. We just had the 100th anniversary of her birth last year. But it seems like there's there's more to this resurgence than just um, that anniversary. Why do you think that what she advocated for is particularly relevant today? Well, I think what what happens in cities is going to make or break the world, to put it to put it, <laughs> maybe to over-exaggerate it, but I don't think it is. I think all of the issues that are so important that are happening right now about health, the economy, the global warming, income inequality, all are going to center around how we deal with this mass urbanization that's happening all over the world. And it's happening at a rate that's much faster than anything the U.S. ever saw. And so I, I think that, that, that that's going to become, a, you know, one of the most important issues um, that the world faces right now. Jane Jacobs was a resident, just a just an average person with no professional background in engineering or urban planning or anything. But she took it on upon herself to learn about these issues and became sort of the leader of a movement. I think that the democratization of urban design and just 
a critical analysis of our cities is it's certainly something that we push for at our organization, Strong Towns. Do you see that democratization of urban planning and, and thinking uh, as something that's growing right now? Well, Jacobs was a journalist and a keen observer and a great skeptic. She wrote this book after about, you know, 30-year journalism career. She's the one that really brought us the uh, concept of the democratization of cities. Uh, and in the context of what she was writing, Death and Life of Great American Cities came out in a period where everything was top-down planning. And she absolutely overturned the table on that. Someone describes her as Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses on the door of the cathedral. So we have her to thank for the uh, democratization of planning. Whether or not it's actually happened uh, in a meaningful way is uh, another discussion entirely. Jacobs was almost, and and the movement that she's inspired is a little bit anti-professional. And especially as you illustrate in the film, and as many people are familiar with, she was kind of pitted against this hyper-professional master builder planner, Robert Moses. Um, They're kind of opposites of each other. Is there a way to be a conscious and caring urban planning professional, or does that degree and that title make it really challenging to uphold the values of Jane Jacobs? Jacobs was so anti-credential, it was almost a, to the point of violence. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. It's Once you get into the issue and the way she phrases it or uh, puts it in her later books, uh, you begin to think, oh, this is really smart. She compares the planners and architects of the mid-century to physicians in the 18th and 19th century who were uh, obsessed with bloodletting. And it's such a powerful, frightening metaphor. What she's saying is bloodletting was received wisdom at the time. They thought that they were saving the patient. And uh, if you tried to deny bloodletting, they would probably tie you down and let your blood anyway. This is a really kind of powerful image, I think. And uh, I think that part of her legacy and part of her greatness is that she gives us these extraordinary images and these extraordinary ways of seeing that you can continually apply. Uh, Yes, bloodletting happened hundreds of years ago, but to view urban planners as bloodletters and to see the damage that they've done. Or I think something we confront today is the kind of like continuing sort of medical industrial complex, the received wisdom of doctors, you know. Remember a few years ago when it was revealed that eating margarine was actually probably responsible for hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths. Well, who told us to eat margarine? You know, the medical community. But this kind of skepticism is the essence of of Jane Jacobs. And it And I think that's also the essence of the movie, which is we need to wake up to this way of seeing and way of thinking and start applying it in our own world. Do you think that current urban planners today are moving in that direction or is it still a fairly, you know, rigid profession? It depends a lot by the city and the country. I think, you know, this, this is where I think you're seeing the most extreme examples of this kind of Moses redux is in, is in China. And, you know, I think, I think they use the, the power broker, the Robert Caro's famous book on cautionary tale about uh, Moses as a, as a textbook, not, not as a warning. Corbusier's legacy, which is clean slate, 
you know, let's tear it down and rebuild it new, is still very pervasive, even in academic circles in this country. It's And of course, it's being applied in the developing world. Uh, but it's surprising how much received wisdom is still at large in the uh, planning and uh, architecture communities. And architects always defend Le Corbusier because he's there. He's taught as a god. Jacobs was debunking that 50 years ago, and it's that is remarkable to me that even though her message was very much heard, and she did indeed change uh, the academic world of planning and a lot of other professions related to it, she, she added new insights that were very well considered and some of them adopted. It's still shocking. In our conversation before recording, Matt mentioned that the audiences that Jane Jacobs appeals to are fairly siloed. Tell me more about that, and how do you think this film will be able to reach those different audiences? Yeah, what I meant by that was uh, there's a big audience for a film like this. I think that urban planners and the architects and people who are interested in sustainability because the, the city is probably the number one issue that will affect sustainability going forward. But um, it's interesting bringing the film into the world. We're finding that a lot of these particular interest groups don't talk to each other. When you say urban planning to someone that's not into urban planning, their eyes glaze over and the conversation kind of ends. But so much relates to this topic that's that's much bigger than urban planning. And uh, I, I've just been remarking upon how, you know, the architects kind of talk to the planners, but not really. And the sustainability people don't really talk to the planners unless they're specialists in that type of sustainability. It, it, it was remarkable to me. I think the audience, everyone's interested and, and has to be interested in the city. Even if you don't know you're interested in the city, if you live in a city, you are interested in cities. But it's a hard topic for people to grasp. And I'll say that we made the movie for a general audience. We didn't want to preach to the converted. That was very important to us. So it's a film that uh, we hope is exciting and fun to watch. Uh, it's also character-driven. Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs are the two characters that bring you through this set of ideas from uh, this particular period, which we hope have resonance for today. So it seems like this film is not purely meant to just educate people about these historical figures. There's also a mission behind it. What are your biggest goals and what are you hoping people take away from seeing this film? Well, I think it's changed since we made the film and since the, it's come out. We thought we were going to have our first female president. And now a lot of people are walking away from the movie and seeing it sort of as a textbook for social activism. Jane is so well known, or if, if she's known, she's known, you know, for her ideas, for her books. But what plays out in the movie is what a great activist she was. She mobilized, you know, her community, her neighborhood, her city to fight against what most people thought were insurmountable odds. You know, Robert Moses famously almost never lost a battle and she beat him three times. And that's what I think is inspiring, but it's also sobering because her battles took decades and it wasn't about, you know, she did rally at city hall, but that wasn't that just what won it. It was really studying how government work and, 
and working at the grassroots level. You know, these battles weren't necessarily fought in Washington. They were fought in City Hall and community board meetings. Um, and so that's where I think she can be a great inspiration for what a lot of people are seeing today. She was a great strategist. She really knew how to uh, take a fight and bring it to the people and rally communities. She did these amazing things like uh, have people show up at city council meetings wearing sunglasses with X's painted on them, which were to evoke the X's that the uh, city painted on buildings that they were condemning. So we realized that she was sort of doing memes before memes were, were possible. She was doing analog memes and uh, these things really caught on. But that wasn't all she was doing. She was really a, a really great strategist and thinker, and she was figuring out how to short-circuit the political structures that were bringing these these terrible threats to the communities, the really vital communities of New York City, which the powers that be were calling slums, urban cancer that needed to be cut out. Her great contribution was saying – she was a whistleblower saying, no, 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 wait a minute. These are vital neighborhoods. They look – for whatever your agenda is, they don't suit you. Maybe people who are of, uh, you know, minority groups live here and they don't look pristine and clean, but there's a lot of social capital here. Social capital was a term she may have very well coined. So she's thinking about cities in terms of social capital, whereas our Robert Moses and his cohort were thinking about cities in terms of uh, just basically bricks and mortar and infrastructure. Uh, infrastructure, of course, is important. Uh, we talk about infrastructure a lot today and the, the neglect of it. But cities are more than that. They're people. As you guys pointed out in the film, um, Jacobs got her start in publicly writing about urban issues through Vogue magazine, um, which is a publication that I think probably a lot of people see as just, you know, focused on fashion and makeup and things like that. And then recently we've seen Teen Vogue magazine get a lot of attention for covering political and social justice issues, which again has surprised a lot of people that saw that as, you know, just like a teen gossip magazine. Why do you think that these women's magazines are choosing to be platforms for dealing with these broader issues then and now? Vogue has always had sort of a literary bent, actually. It was interesting that she pitched as a freelancer in the 1930s these articles about the different districts that were related to the fashion business in New York City, like the Diamond District and the Fur District and the Flower District. And you can see the origins of the mature Jane Jacobs uh, thinker in these pieces where she's, you know, she's analyzing closely slivers of the urban economy, which is very much which she ended up doing in the major part of her career. I come from the magazine world. Magazines change with, uh, you know, with the times and the regimes, both who run them and both who uh, are, are the, you know, the governments. I think that uh, wisely Teen Vogue has realized that uh, there's a new generation and there's a new f kind of uh, governing that's happening in this country that is uh, something that their readers uh, are connecting to or should connect to. I think this, by the way, has a lot to do with uh, the rise of cities, the, the comeback of cities in this country. Because if you think of what we broadly call the hipster movement, which is very much an urban thing, 
and a lot of I think Teen Vogue wants to get that kind of that kind of reader. These are people that are urbanists. You know, they live in cities and they're kind of rediscovering cities and um, doing adaptive reuse a lot. You know, the neighborhood where my office is in in Los Angeles is near Silver Lake, which is you know the, I guess you could call it the Brooklyn of LA. And this is like a huge adaptive reuse story, and they're you know biking is you know, hugely on the rise. So rightly so, Teen Vogue should be writing about that because that's what their readers, uh, certain segments of their readers are interested in. I think it's a growth demographic. Interesting to look at Jacobs back in the 30s and 40s as a, uh, a woman who was very interested in urbanism and decided to settle with her family, her young family in a part of New York City, which was then very unvogue which was the west village which was eventually not long after she moved there uh considered to be a slum by robert moses and the authorities in the city now this is unthinkable today but just shows you how our perception of the city and how the city itself morphs and changes jacobs you could say was an early gentrifier of the west village but way early because she moved there in the, in the 30s I've heard some people criticize Jacobs and say exactly that. They're like, okay, well, now Greenwich Village is just this posh, unaffordable place. And should we like try to freeze that place in time or should we, you know, allow more housing and things like that? What's the response to those kind of criticisms? You know, I think she foresaw some of those changes. There's a great chapter where she talks about over success. What happens? when the very things that make a neighborhood dynamic bring in too many of the same uses. And she even, you know, back in the 60s, uses an example of what happens with three or four corners are filled with banks. And I think that's where she would say, you know, cities need to keep evolving. You know, she uses the example of thinking of the city like a body, a living organism. So it constantly needs to be changing. I think we're facing completely different situation than she was then. You know, at the time, people were leaving the city. Now we have almost too many people wanting to come to the city. We have over-success. And so I don't think she would ever say we should use her book as a prescription for everything that's happening today. I think she would say, do what I did and look around the city and see what's working, not working, and advocate for that change. So there have been a lot of books and articles and essays written about Jacobs, especially um, with, again, the 100th anniversary of her birth last year. And of course, Jacobs was a writer herself. But what does a movie do for us that books and essays maybe cannot? Or um, how, is, how is a film showing us a different uh, perspective or a different way of looking at this? Well, as a, uh, someone who started out in print journalism, uh, it was remarkable to me uh, switching to filmmaking, the power of film. I mean, of course, I was a film student, and I understand, of course, films are very powerful media, but when you compare it to writing print, and I wrote for, I still do write for Vanity Fair, which is, you know, a pretty large circulation publication, gets a lot of attention. There's no comparison. People, Film is just so powerful. People respond to it in a kind of visceral way. Well, so that's one thing. The challenge uh, from a filmmaking perspective, in part, was bringing two intellectuals, Moses and Jacobs. Uh, Moses was a sort of 
very bright person. He's he's kind of like the dark force in the film, but he you can't deny that he wasn't a brilliant man, and and quite an intellect actually as well. He could recite Shakespeare from memory. But anyway, they was, they, those are people who had ideas and ideologies, and, and the movie's really about that. So how to bring that to the screen, and also how to bring someone whose best lines really were written. Cities are highly visual, so through the magic of archival film, try to illustrate the types of cities that Jacobs was writing about uh, then and now, which are lively, diverse places. And you see that in the archival footage of New York City from the 30s and 40s and the middle of the last century. Such a vibrant place that has uh, a magic that's that's visceral on film. So this was a real joy to do. And uh, part of the point of the film is to kind of revel in cityness as you, as you can see it uh, through all of this archival. Yeah. What were the challenges of covering this topic, especially, you know, covering two people who are no longer living that you can't interview yourself? Was it easy to find other people to talk to about Jane Jacobs and, you know, locating those historic archives and things? There are plenty of people with opinions on Jane Jacobs. I can tell you that we were able to find people to speak up, speak for her. There are plenty of people to talk about Robert Moses as well. The archival was, you know, the great Easter egg hunt. We really, you know, were digging through the proverbial dusty boxes trying to find some of this stuff. So uh, a lot of the archival we found has never been seen before. There was an interview of Jacobs from the late 70s. One minute of it appeared in a documentary film from the uh, that period, but there were uh, three hours of excess footage so we were really lucky to find this uh, great footage of Jacobs in her own words. And there were other interviews of her. Moses was the ultimate media whore. So he's infamous, so, you know, and beloved by the mainstream press. So he's on TV a lot in the 50s and the 60s. And that one of the filmmaking tricks is that Moses is so powerful on camera because he says these outrageous things. He has such gumption. And, and bravado and egotism that it was sort of a problem. He would overpower Jane, but eventually we found enough footage of her and she's incredibly well-spoken uh, and uh, brilliant and uh, has her own kind of style. So, yeah. She uh, has sort of the quiet confidence, whereas he's more of like the overbearing intense personality. Yeah. And some of the early screenings are uh, you know, when you first see the movie with an audience, it's fascinating to see how the audience reacts. And it's all sort of lurk in the back of the theater. And inevitably, someone turns to someone else and when Moses is speaking and says, Trump. Because <laughs> he really has that over-the-top uh, manner. If our listeners are interested in watching this film, how can they go about doing that? Do we, they need to live in a city where it's being shown or is this available to watch online? Uh, yes and yes. Uh, you can go to the movie theater, uh, in New York city on uh, the 21st of April where it premieres, but then it rolls out across the country in theaters. So check your, uh, Google it basically, and you'll see if it's playing in your city. Uh, it's also streaming on demand as the month of April turns to May. 
which is Jane Jacobs's birthday month, she's born on May 4th, we go wide. So we should be expanding across the country. I hope it does, we do get to play uh, in smaller cities. Uh, I think that's quite likely. Great. Well, I, I hope so too. And I was glad that I had the opportunity to see it. Um, what are you guys working on next? Well, you want to talk about the high, the next phase of the High Line, and I'll talk about movies, Robert. Sure. Uh, one of the things we're doing at the High Line that sort of relates is we've created something called the High Line Network, is of these other industrial reuse projects all over the country, and how we can learn from each other. You know, when Josh and I started the High Line back in 1999, it was a whole different uh, set of issues, and now that we're open, we need to respond to we're we're, we're you know, operating in a very different city. And how does everyone benefit from public space? And, you know, public spaces aren't going to solve the housing problems, income inequality, but, but they intersect around open space. And so that's one of the things we're working on. And we don't have all the answers at the High Line, so we wanted to, you know, collaborate with these other groups to make sure we keep not just innovating in design, but innovating how you how you make public space truly equitable. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I mean, I know the Highline has been a huge inspiration point for people all over the country and probably all over the world. So that's it's super impressive. We have a film out um, about Jean Nouvel, which might be interesting to your listeners. Uh, it's a short that uh, you can actually you can Google that. And it'll uh, it's available online actually, and then. Uh, just finishing a film called Scotty Bowers and the Secret History of Hollywood, which is about the uh, number one male madam in the golden age of Hollywood, who's still alive and very much with us. And he reveals the um, the secret system of uh, basically being gay in uh, Hollywood because it was uh, very much against the rules and against the law. And there was a whole culture there that he presides over and uh, tells us about in this film. Well, Matt and Robert, thank you so much for your time today. It was a privilege to view this film, and I know that a lot of our readers and listeners will be excited to see it and learn more from it as well. So thank you so much, and take care. Thank you. Thank you. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.